Good morning. Nice to see you all this morning. We are, uh, this is a fun message to present. Um, I was just notified um, yesterday morning that uh, Doug was not able to give us this message, but he sent me his slides. And Doug had put an awful lot of work into those slides. So I'm going to be preaching this morning blatantly stealing some of Doug Virgin's stuff. Now, for those of you that are maybe new here, you don't understand or don't know Doug and I, it's kind of like a first-year college student taking material from a prof with 30 years of whatever and teaching from it. Okay, so just bear that in mind as we go along. It's so interwoven that I can't really tell you. I might point it out a couple of times what was specifically Doug Virgin's whatever, but it's, it is definitely woven in here. What's also fun is that there's a sermon within this sermon. So picture that really what I'm going to be preaching this morning is two sermons from two other guys. So it's part of Doug's virgin sermon, and then it's actually got Stephen's sermon in it. So there you go. And just to confuse things further, I changed the title. So I'm going to call this message A Man Named Stephen. And you'll see why as we go through the message today. So the Acts of the Apostles, which is what we are working our way through right now, is the fifth book of the New Testament. So it comes right after the Gospels that tell us about the life of Jesus. And it is the continuing story of King Jesus as he establishes his kingdom. And we see the coming of the Holy Spirit that enables Jesus' followers to go, to really like go out with the gospel. The, it, he, the Holy Spirit empowers them to go and make the gospel known, both to Jews and to non-Jews, starts in Jerusalem, goes out to the ends of the earth, all about Jesus' salvation, his death and resurrection. What's so amazing is this, this is kind of like jazz music. Do you know with jazz music how like it never ends? It just goes on and on and on? Well, this is what, like the book of Acts is 28 chapters, and we'll work our way through a good part of it anyway. But the beauty of the church that was started in the book of Acts is that it goes on and on and on. We are like 100 generations after the church started, and guess what? The church is growing. It is expanding. It is going out all over the world. You can go to crazy, faraway places like beyond the middle of nowhere. I've got to do some of that in my work with Youth for Christ. I always, for instance, um, refer to Timbuktu as if a sort of a fictitious place. And then one time, as I'm flying down into Benin, I fly over Timbuktu. I realized, no, this place actually exists. But no matter where you go, you find that the gospel, the church, is continuing to grow and expand. What's also amazing is where persecution comes that naturally speaking would hinder the growth of the church, in fact, what you see over and over again is 
the church is stronger in those places. And so in the ways of God, every time Satan tries to bring stuff against the church, he actually ends up strengthening the church. So let's be amazed. You and I that belong to Jesus, we are part of this church that started back here in the book of Acts, and it continues this day, and it will continue until Jesus comes. So the author is a fascinating person. His, he is Luke, and he is a master history teacher and storyteller. And he, you'll, you'll see his style through this with a few of the characters, but I get to talk about Stephen. You'll see that he plants a new character, and then he waits a little bit, then he develops that character some more, and then you actually see what that character's role is. You see it with Barnabas, with Stephen, with Paul, and with others as, we, uh, as you look at the, the writings of Luke. So, where are we in this big story? The book of Acts is long. So, we are, just to sort of summarize, in the first five chapters, the gospel was going to the Jews. The church was essentially Jewish, and it was Jerusalem-centric. Then, in chapter 6, where we, we heard from Uberson last week, you start to see... Uh, this expansion, and you start to understand uh, there were those that were actually came to know Christ right on the day of Pentecost, which is right at the beginning, but you see these churches being formed, these synagogues, there's, there's a growing thing here going on where the church is becoming multicultural. And Uberson chatted with us about some of the challenges, the growth, the blessing, the wisdom that's needed in the multicultural reality of the church. And of course, here at RBC, all you have to do is look around to say, yes, we are, we are part of the body of Christ, and we are multicultural, and that is an awesome thing and something to celebrate. We are now going to look again at chapter 6 and chapter 7 today, but looking at chapter 6, I'm not going to be repeating what Uberson talked about. <clears throat> today I'm going to be looking at this character named Stephen, as he is introduced to us and then developed in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And then, of course, there's more <clears throat> that goes on in, in 8. Um, the, we get to meet Philip in chapter 10. We see Peter's role in the expansion of the church. And from chapter 13 and on, the gospel goes out to the whole Roman Empire. But the point of it, and what I really want to focus on today is what Hebrews 13, 7 and 8 tells us. Remember your leaders, in this case, Stephen, who taught you the word of God, think of all the good that has come from their lives, and follow the example of their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So my desire for each of us today, in this, in the, here and listening online, is that we would be challenged through the life of Stephen. As we see this man of God, as we see his walk of faith, as we see how he lives it out and then how he dies for his faith, that we would be challenged in our own lives to live as Stephen lived for the glory of God. So the story of Stephen begins in chapter 6 and... 
we get this, I'm just giving you a summary here, and then we'll see these different parts of it in his life. So, Stephen was a team player. He could work with other people in accomplishing whatever task needed to be done. He was full of faith and the Holy Spirit, grace, power, wisdom, and the Spirit again. His face shone with joy when he was falsely accused. This one really bugged me um, because just this week, I, in my work with Youth for Christ, I deal with lots of different lovely people from all around the world. But every so often, one of them gets upset. And I was on a Zoom call this week with a person that was very upset at me. And I felt they were falsely accusing me. But as I read this, I was thinking, of course, on Zoom, you can see each other too, right? And I'm thinking, there is no way my face was shining like an angel's. So I, I just like, I, I was just, oh my goodness. It, this, this Stephen is amazing. He knew the word of God, and we will see this today. And in that, there is this huge challenge for us to know God's word. You can't do God's word light and really follow Jesus well. His word is so core to us and our walk as children of God. He talked like Jesus. He, what came out of his mouth in the most stressful of circumstances sounded like Jesus. He was a man, and this is like crazy. Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When Stephen arrived, Jesus stood up. And Stephen's last sermon may well have been the first sermon that Saul of Tarsus heard and that God used in the shaping and molding and the message that Saul would go out to the world with. Okay, now I've got a fun one here for you. The Catholics and the Protestants at the time. So you heard some of this before, but I just want to, it, it'll give me, it'll make it easy for me to reference this and for you to understand where Stephen shows his character, if you just get this briefly. So there's typically different schools of thought, there's different people's histories, and we've got it in Christendom today. We've got the Catholics and we've got the Protestants. Back then, there was the Palestinian Jews and there was the Hellenists. So the Palestinian Jews were descendants of exiled Jews that had returned under Ezra and Nehemiah. <coughs> they were vigilant in the observance of the law and the traditions of the Jewish religion, and they typically spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. The Hellenists, they were descendants maybe of the dispersion that did not return under Ezra and Nehemiah. They were Jews living very influenced by the Greek-speaking world around the Mediterranean. They spoke Greek, and they had these synagogues in their own cities, various sects, probably actually spoke Greek even in the synagogues because that was their language. So you had the Palestinian Jews and you had the Hellenists, and they were pretty separate and didn't necessarily think so highly of each other. 
So just park that because I'll refer back to those two as we go through this. All right, now we're going to look at Stephen in chapter 6, and then we're going to look at Stephen in chapter 7. So to start off in chapter 6 of Acts, we find this man that, as we have said, was a team player, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, grace and power, wisdom in the Spirit, and had a face that shone with joy when he was falsely accused. So, let's look at a few of these verses, and to because we've got to spend quite a bit of time in chapter 7, I'm just going to give you some of the quotes from chapter 6 that help us to see this character, Stephen. So, it says, As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So there you have it. The Greek-speaking, that's the Hellenists, and you have the Hebrew-speaking, that's the Palestinian believers. You've got these two groups, and one is complaining about the other. So, select seven men, the, the, the um, apostles say, who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Everyone liked the idea. They chose the following. And the first one named, and this is key, and this is how Luke does this in his writings. He says, Stephen. First time you hear about Stephen. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then Philip, also going to be key. And then on through uh, the rest. Stephen is a man full of God's grace and power, it says. And he performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Now, I want to say two things here. So, first of all, Stephen was able and willing to be a team player doing the mundane, doing what appears to be nothing spectacular. He actually had to be part of the food distribution to, in the church. Now, if we were thinking perhaps, okay, who's going to, there were years ago when we used to have a food, uh, we could actually, people could come and get food who, who were coming to RBC. Well, if we were saying, who should be responsible for food, we would probably think, oh, somebody new to the church, somebody that maybe is, you know, that just sort of is tagging along, let's, let's help them get them involved a little bit or something, and let's, let's put them in, in, in the food ministry. And those that are more knowledgeable and advanced and growing and maybe have, have leadership potential, we'd be saying, perhaps don't waste their talent on the food bank or the food ministry. So just a few weeks ago, I was down at Welcome Hall Mission. And I'm walking along with Sam Watts, who's the uh, leader down there, and we're chatting with different folks that are there volunteering at Welcome Hall Mission. That was so awesome. Do you know those people are from like all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, and for them this was a very high calling to be there at Welcome Hall helping out in terms of serving those that needed food. But here we see in the character of Stephen that he could do both, and he could do it Happily. Both are important. I'm preaching a sermon today. Yesterday, just yesterday, a guy back there named Israel, he and I were screwing together a bunk bed set. 
And an IKEA bunk bed set, by the way, which means it comes in a million pieces. Right? They, I think they see how many pieces they can possibly get it into. So, which is more important? He and I putting a bunk bed set together yesterday or me preaching a sermon today? In God's economy, the answer is both. Yes. It's both and. And Stephen was a man that modeled for us that he was right there, a team player, working alongside, just like Israel was with me yesterday. Now, the second thing to notice is that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, and he performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Now, I'll pick on Joash a little bit here now. Joash, for some of you that don't know him, sitting right over here. Uh, Joash spoke a couple of weeks ago. He suggested to us that miracles was back for a time back then at the start of the early church. So I'm just going to tell you what happened to me about a week ago. So I had listened to Joe Ash's message, and I was challenged to, like, don't wait for the perfect opportunity to speak the truth of God, to share, to actually talk. So I'm with a lady that I have known for a long time. She has some children, and she's not teaching her children very much about the Lord right now. And I figure I want to have a heart-to-heart. Ask her if I have permission to that. She says, yes. We sit down in a Timmy's. We find a spot where there's nobody around. And we have an hour chat on the importance of the Word of God, of knowing it, of following it, of reading it, and of teaching it to your children. And we get to the end of that talk. And we're getting up to go. Her car is ready now. And as we get up and turn around, Here's a guy sitting right behind us with an open Bible, all marked up. I go to say to him, is that a, and he says to me, before I can get out the word, he says, yes, it's a Bible. I've been sitting here listening to your conversation and praying for you for the past hour. Now, a miracle ceased? Just saying, Joash. There you go. And thank you for that message, because it really challenged me. All right. So now, let's look at the accusations that come against him, and just how he responds to this. Because Stephen, we've seen his character, we've seen part of it. Now we're going to see some more. Because when the accusations come, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came upon him, seized him, brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, we have heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. There's where I was crazy challenged, okay? He's being falsely accused. Um, He's amongst his own in the sense that this is the Hellenists that are, like he's in with his own people, and yet he's being falsely accused. He's being set up 
as we'll learn, to actually, that for them to be able to kill him, legally, and yet, instead of him being upset because he was falsely accused, his face shines like the face of an angel. And you know what dawned on me here? Is this should have been a crazy wake-up call to the high council. Who do we have in the Old Testament that when he was in the presence of God, his face shone, and they, he literally had to take a veil and cover his face? Moses! They all knew the story of Moses. They all knew about that impact of, spending, of the presence of God. And yet here, right in their high council, they're watching Stephen as he's being falsely accused. His face is shining, and they don't get it. Amazing, but it's also just awesome to see the character of Stephen here. The accusations concerning the temple, that was the main charge that the Jewish leaders had made against Jesus. By the way, this slide right here, wait, uh, go to the next one. That one. This is a Doug slide, totally. Okay? The accusation concerning the temple was the main charge that the Jewish leaders had made against Jesus. When Judea became a Roman province in AD 6, execution was allowed only after a decision by a Roman governor. The one exception, Jewish leaders could execute on their own authority a person who spoke against their temple. They had failed. The Jewish leaders had failed to prove this accusation against Jesus, and that is why they had brought him before Pilate. When the high priest asked, are these things so, he was looking for a pretext to execute Stephen. So now we understand the setting and exactly what was going on there. Now we go to chapter 7. Stephen in chapter 7. And I want you to be amazed at these four things in chapter 7. One, Stephen knew the word of God. He knew it amazingly well. This sermon, I had short notice for this sermon, but I still had hours of preparation, and I still have notes. Okay? As far as we know, Stephen had no preparation for this, and yet it becomes the sermon of all sermons for his life and his witness, and I don't think he had any notes either. I don't imagine so. So Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit, He's using the knowledge that he has studied and has become a part of him as he can just tell it like it is and make his points. The three points that we can summarize here today, and this is, again, A, B, and C there is totally Doug Virgin. God is not confined to the geographical land of Israel. Acceptable worship is not limited to the Jewish temple. And the Jews have constantly rejected God's representatives. You see those three things. He uses the Old Testament. He walks them through their own history. And as he does, he presents those things clearly to them. We also see in chapter 7, as I talked about already, and we'll see it, he was a man for whom Jesus stood at the right hand of God. He talked like Jesus in his life and death. And maybe... His last sermon had a huge influence on Saul of Tarsus. So now, let's hear Stephen preach, and then we'll talk about it. So if you want to follow along, it is in Acts chapter 7, and it starts at verse 2. And Stephen said, you can choose to just listen, or you can choose to follow along. But I want you to 
try to imagine Stephen at the High Council. He's been falsely accused, and I want you to just hear with me today this sermon that comes out, okay? Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. He gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? 
This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dis disposed, dispossessed the nations, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's a sermon. That's a sermon. He preached his heart out, and it met, it met the mark. He did not hold back, and God used it in an amazing way in this turning point in the church. For Stephen, it cost him his life, but in the history of the church, it was absolutely fundamental. So as we talked about, he, he used his knowledge of the word to convey specific things. God not being confined to the geographical land of Israel, acceptable worship not being limited to the Jewish temple, and that the Jews had constantly rejected God's representatives, which they ended up just rebelling against. So, what do we say in terms of being a Stephen? Know the Word of God. We got to know it. Some of you that know me well might think, oh, Dave knows the Word of God. And I thank God for the degree in which I do. But I would freely confess to you, I could not preach a sermon like that without preparation. <laughs> he's quoting, he's naming people and places and throughout the history in absolute order as he goes. He knew, he had immersed himself in the word of God to be able to do that.
Dwight L. Moody, um, preacher of the last century, uh, he said, and it's an amazing quote, the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. If we immerse ourselves in the word of God, brothers and sisters, it will keep us following Jesus. If we start to replace the Bible with books about the Bible, if we start to replace the Bible with other things that take our interests more, the next thing you know, we will be living lives that are not in keeping with the Word of God, and then we don't want to read the Bible because it's just going to make us uncomfortable. Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I like the thought that it both shows us where we are now and sin that we have to judge in our lives and gives us a perspective in terms of where we are at this time in our lives, and then it also shows us the way forward and how we are to live our lives. In 1 Timothy, Paul says to a younger man, to Timothy, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You cannot learn the word of God without work. There's a lady in here, I do not have permission to mention her name, so I won't, but she is 95% through her PhD. And if you talk to her about the amount of work and the length of time it has taken to do that, it is amazing. And she is dreaming of the day, perhaps by Christmas this year, where we'll be able to congratulate her on having finished her PhD. Brothers and sisters, if you and I are going to know the Word of God, there is no substitute for hard work. We have to study it. If we're going to be able to teach it and Go for it when the opportunity presents itself, like Stephen did here. We have to know it. And as it says in Romans, such things that were written in the scriptures long ago, they're to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. There are bridges. There are things that happen. If some of you were out a few weeks ago here, when um, our brother Andrew Dawson shared with us from John 8, I think it was in a breaking of bread service, but he was pumped and excited. You could see it talking about Jesus revealing himself as the great I am. What was, why was that so significant? Well, as Andrew was sharing and was very enthusiastic at doing it because he had, had studied this bridge clearly, was back to the, 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 um, when Moses sees the burning bush. And the Lord appears to him and reveals himself as the I am. And now, 1,500 years later, you've got the Jesus himself here as Messiah, and he reveals in his teaching that he is, in fact, the I am. He also uses those verses from, from around the burning bush to show why, in fact, there is a resurrection. Because, Jesus said, or because God said there... I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Jesus says, hey, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he would have had to say, in effect, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by the time he's talking to Moses, if there was no resurrection. So Jesus uses that passage. There are links all through. That's just one. But we need to know the scriptures if, in fact, we're going to be able to enjoy and grow these things, or grow in these things. So I am going to not go through all the points here, but I'll just skip through a few of them. In terms of not confined to Israel, 
there's some fun things in here. Uh, Stephen is using the word of God, and he's using the history, but he's kind of poking at the Hellenist uh, Jews there in terms of the history. And he's pointing out all the things that, in fact, didn't happen in the land of Israel. So for somebody to be under the impression that sort of God works solely in the land of Israel, it was like an awful lot of things happened here, guys, that were actually not in Israel. Um, even the uh, Shechem, the burial place of the patriarchs, and even Mount Sinai. Like, hello, it's not all about Israel. And he could just point that out clearly to them. He points out to them that worship, God's not limited in his worship. There was no grand thing about this temple, even as Solomon, who built the temple, um, is clear that it's, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon diminished the value of the temple because he recognized God was so much bigger. And so he's poking at them as he's doing this, but he's obviously using scripture to do it. And then the Jews had always rejected. You go down through their history, and it was a history of rejection, and they were about to reject one more. They were about to reject Stephen and his message. So Stephen was able to take the word of God and use it in the situation. When you and I become equipped in the word of God, then the spirit of God can take what we have learned and bring it to our mind in a situation. So next week, Natalie's in a work situation and she gets an opportunity to chat with someone and what can the spirit do? Well, what Natalie has studied and made her own the Lord can now take that and bring something to mind that's just relevant to that situation. You can't, we can't, I don't know if this is 100% true, but I feel like it's true that the Spirit of God isn't going to bring something to our memory that we've never read um, or that we haven't studied. I feel like he takes and works with what we have actually studied and made our own and uses that to then bring to our mind at the right time for us to be able to be a witness and be a voice for him. So, be a Stephen. Know the word of God. Now, let's go to the, the three last things in here, and we'll move through these quite quickly. Stephen was a man for whom Jesus stood. This is unprecedented in Scripture. It's a one-of, and it's something that we don't totally understand. But Stephen, at this last moment of his life, he says... I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He uses the title of Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself. He's, he's, it's the only time outside of the Gospels in the New Testament where, where it's used. The witnesses stand in court or in situations. Why? We don't quite understand exactly what was happening, but somehow... As Stephen gives this brilliant defense of who Jesus is, and as he lays down his life in martyrdom, Jesus stands. Every so often in my journeys around the world, I meet a woman or a man 
or whom I think, when they reach heaven, Jesus will stand. Brothers and sisters, he's a man that was happy to be helping with a food drive. He was just one of the team players. But he was a man who studied and knew the word of God. He walked by faith. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God was able to take him and use him in mighty ways. The next one, he talked and acted like Jesus in life and in death. As you see him in the height, he's being stoned. Rocks are coming at him. His life is going to be over momentarily. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them for this sin. Who does that sound like? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Jesus said on the cross. It's so neat to me here because he didn't, this is not, he didn't quote Jesus. It's just what came out of him sounded like Jesus. He had that same heart, that same attitude. And it was because he had spent so much time with Jesus that it just oozed out of him in that critical moment. It is a beautiful thing. And finally, his last sermon. It says in the end of, of chapter 7 that they rushed at him dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then in eight, chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And we go on to see that Saul, in fact, led the work of persecution against the Jewish believers. Saul was a man full of a passion against the followers of Jesus. But this day, he heard a clear, from the heart message. And if you think about it, it was really all about showing that the gospel and the heart of God and the whole message of God was so much bigger than the nation of Israel. Little did Paul know that he was going to be converted. He was going to be changed. His name would be changed from Saul to Paul, and he would become the one that would actually carry out the vision that Stephen had unveiled in this sermon. Isn't that crazy? He's there as an enemy of the cross there. He's there wanting to persecute. He's there collecting the coats while they stone Stephen. So brothers and sisters, in the darkest of times, in the craziest of moments, God is up to something in your life. When you have no idea what is going on, when nothing makes sense, God is up to something. He sees the big picture. He sees, he has a plan. He knows what he is doing. Here, God absolutely had this planned out. He made sure that Saul of Tarsus was there that day to hear that sermon. And that sermon was fulfilled in the life of ministry of the Apostle Paul. Be wowed at what God does. And remember, the point of it all today, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
So, brothers and sisters, remember your leaders. Remember Stephen. He has taught us the Word of God. And you and I can immerse ourselves in the Word of God. The same Spirit that worked through Stephen in that sermon that day, he is alive. Remember I talked about it, I think, in my last sermon. It's like digital photography. Remember that? It doesn't get weak. It's not like old Kodak pictures that fade and whatever. You can send a picture to another person, to another person. If it's digital, it doesn't fade. It doesn't weaken. The Spirit of God that was there in Stephen that day, He is still alive and well, and He is working in you and through you. And He wants you to be as effective in your life as Stephen was in his life. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. May you and I be challenged through the life of Stephen. May we follow in his steps. May we be women and men who are passionate about Jesus, passionate about his word, passionate to know him more. And we know that there is no greater joy, there is no greater calling, there is no greater privilege than to be those who are filled with the Spirit, who walk with Jesus and live our lives to the glory of God. Jesus stood up when Stephen arrived. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the model in the life of Stephen. We thank you for his amazing example. In the darkest of times, in times that seemed out of control, whether it was, Lord, in his humility in serving, in, in when food needed to be distributed, whether it was his grace, his ability to see miracles happen in his life and through him, or whether it was through his knowledge of the word of God and his being filled with the spirit, able to speak your words in a way that would impact many. Lord, in his time of crisis, to see him just ooze Jesus is such a model for our hearts. May you call us today, Lord Jesus, in a fresh way, as the Apostle Paul said, to be imitators of him as he is of Christ. So we would say with Stephen, help us to be imitators of Stephen as he was of you. So we thank you, we praise you, we bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen.